Well, good morning, church. This morning, we're going to be back in 1 Thessalonians. That's where we left off last week, looking at what it means to truly love others. And uh, so this morning, I want to maybe recap where we were, work through, uh, finish working through that passage. And then, you know, one of, the, one of the most frustrating things when you hear a sermon on something like this is everybody says, well, yeah, I know, but how? How do I love others this way? And so we'll end this morning spending some time seeing how we accomplish what we're called to do. Um, and so that's a lot of ground to cover, so let's get right into it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 6 through 10. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through faith, through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all of the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Oh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is a light unto our feet, a guide on our path. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it this morning to guide us ever more increasing in love, that we would learn to love others as greater, better than ourselves. Learn to love God with all of our heart and mind, soul and strength, that we would be more like Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to preach and help us to hear, Lord, and help our hearts to receive the wonders of your word the glory of your ways. On our own, all of this is impossible. And so, Lord, we look to you and ask that you would be at work this morning in my words, in our hearts, all of us, Lord, that we would draw near to you and be just a little bit more transformed into the glory of Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Thank you, Father. Amen. When I was younger, I remember once my, uh, my dad was building a commercial property about 150 feet from our home, and, and I was interested in it, as uh, kids are. Every boy likes to watch their dad at work, and so I would watch them build, and that's what I did. And as I was watching, I noticed something strange. There were truckload after truckload of wood chips being, being dug up and hauled away. Not very far away, but they were being hauled away. And, and so after, I asked my dad when he came home, how come you have to take all those wood chips away? And he explained to me that an old sawmill used to dump its wood chips in the place where he was building this property. And in order for the building to be built, all the wood chips had to be hauled away. You 
can't build on wood chips, and if you tried, it would be in vain. The building would be ruined. Nothing would be straight after the first winter. Things would slide and shift and heave and crack, and eventually the whole thing would sink. You can't build on wood chips. That was the lesson that I learned. You have to do groundwork first to prepare the ground, to build the, put the foundation on, to clear these things away so that then something can be built. Well, last week we began doing the groundwork for selfless love. You can't, uh, you can't just start to build relationships like that without first preparing the ground of your own heart. And that heart work, that that contaminant like the wood chips that needs to be hauled off for selfless love not to fall into ruin or crack or collapse is love for self. We have to die to ourselves in order to love others. You, you really cannot begin to love sacrificially if your greatest concern is you. They, they are two totally incompatible positions. And one will always swallow up the other. And if you try to love others as better than yourself, while at the same time trying to love yourself better than anything, you're going to be left with ruins. You're going to be left bitter. There, there is a sense where love for self is lethal to real love. And love for self doesn't fix anything anyway. I mean, just, just think for a moment. You often hear uh, people say that we need to learn to love ourselves. Well, what does that even mean? Let's make up a scenario. You've got a person, they're in their, in their teenage years, and in those years they lived a life of immorality and rebellion, and now as adults they're miserable and their conscience eats at them day and night because of everything they've done. Or they've, they've suffered at the hands of others who are treating them cruelly and hatefully because, I don't know if you know this or not, but people can be cruel and hateful. And so the person begins to despair of life. I mean, this happens. It's a huge problem. People really do suffer under the weight of guilt and the cruelty of others and accusations against them. Let's, let's not pretend this doesn't happen. It does. But just think of the New Testament. How many people in the Gospels do you think were like that? The woman at the well, the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, they were miserable. And if they were around today, the message from the world, what would it be? Well, they just need to learn to love themselves. So what does it mean? Usually when you hear that put forward, it means, uh, certainly when it's coming from the world, they need to accept their past. They need to love themselves in spite of their sin, which usually means coming to terms with it and minimizing it or even learning to celebrate those sinful patterns in their life. They need to reject any accusation or disapproval of others. Either the accusations come from themselves or from others. Refuse them, reject them, and finally pad their own self-confidence so much so that they rise above every criticism and become blameless in their own eyes so that no matter what, they always think of themselves as a 10 out of 10. Love for self. But if you believe the Bible, you know that every one of those recommendations actually leads to destruction. That's what the Bible says. You don't need to accept your past. You need to repent of it, 
confess it for what it was, and then forget what was, what was behind and strive forward. And whenever that past life comes up again to haunt you, you need to crucify it. Put it to death, Paul tells us. Put to death the old man. You don't make peace with him and make terms with him. Put him to death. And you don't need to love yourself in spite of your sin and your guilt and your shame. You need to go to Christ and be forgiven of your guilt and your sin and your shame. And in doing so, actually have it dealt with instead of just pushing it under the rug or ignoring it or making light of it. You make light of the guilt and the sin and the shame. It's all still there and you're just kind of pushing it away. It doesn't deal with it. Christ deals with it. And instead of outright rejecting accusations and criticisms, you need to face them and answer them. Because usually there is a grain of truth in there, and you know it, and, and it gnaws at you because people know I'm denying what is true when they, when they say these things about themselves to build themselves up. No, you, you don't do that. You answer those accusations with the work of Christ so that when your conscience condemns you for losing your temper, for being cruel, for some hateful thing you did a long time ago, some kind of immorality... You don't need to retreat into some fantasy realm where you deny it or minimize it. You have an answer for it. Yes, it's true. I am a sinner and I have sinned. But Christ came for sinners and I have put my hope and trust in Him. And by faith I am righteous as He is righteous and His blood has purified me from all sin. And so in Christ you can meet those accusations with an answer that cannot be resisted. Love for self can't do any of those things. It breeds a kind of dissonance where in order to, to feel good about yourself, you have to deny what is obviously true. And it demands, in a way, you, you lie to yourself until you believe that lie and feel better. Christ, Christianity doesn't do that. It deals with these things head on and it answers them. And it puts them to rest. And when it answers them, it proves that the way to greatest joy is found not in self-centeredness that rises above criticism, but in humility that stops thinking about self and starts learning to love everyone else around them. Learning to love and to serve others. That's the way to find joy. That's where Paul found his joy in trials and tribulations. That's how he conquered his past. I mean, think of Paul, a past full of murder and blasphemy. He, he didn't need to love himself. He needed the love of Christ. But that was enough. And because Christ was enough, it liberated him and it freed him from, from selfishness so that he could find his joy in others. That's exactly what happened in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is having a hard go. And he is alleviated from his burden... He's alleviated from the weight of his affliction by the news that the Thessalonian believers were doing well. He loved them so much that when he heard that things were going well for them, that they're striving in the faith, all of his, his chains became as light as feathers. As far as it concerned Paul, whether things went well for him or not, it really didn't matter that much. What really mattered for him, that the question he was asking how are my children in the faith? How are the churches? Are they doing well? If they are, then I am overjoyed and nothing can take this joy away. 
in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he gives a long list of all the hardships he faced. When he, and when he comes to the end of that list, he says in verse 28, and apart from all these other things, he, he puts this in the same category. All of those other things are shipwrecks and being stoned and being whipped and being imprisoned. And along with all of those things, there is the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And I know this shows the opposite of joy. He loves the churches so much he is anxious for them, but the point of love remains the same. His love for the churches, for his fellow believers, is so great that his life, all of his well-being, his happiness, it's bound up in theirs, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's death to self, isn't it? When it's not about you anymore, it's about them. That's why we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We love one another, or we ought to. And it's not just Paul who examples this. The greatest example of this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12:2 it says, uh, reminding us that in the horror of the cross, he found joy, not but because of what was happening to him, but it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. What joy? Well, the joy of knowing what the cross would accomplish for his people. And so he laid down his life for them, and he loved them, and it led to a, a sober, but a very real joy. Don't you see this in the thief on the cross? While Jesus was being crucified, do you remember what the thieves were doing? They were mocking him. Both of them were mocking him. They were ridiculing Jesus. And then at some point during those three hours, one of the thieves repents and looks to Christ and asks him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' words, they weren't rebuke. They weren't dismissal. There was no hesitation. Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, do you think Jesus was joyful to see that thief in heaven? I tell you, he was joyful. He was dying for that thief, that moment, to save him. And He is our example. I mean, think of the last time that you were enduring a trial. Now, of course, it's nothing compared to Christ, but you're in a trial. And at your lowest moment, your lowest moment in this exhausting challenge, someone comes along and they start mocking you and making fun of you. Making fun of you because of the trial. In that moment, are you thinking about forgiveness? And then if they come to you maybe an hour later repentantly and ask you to forgive them, are you ready to forgive them? I mean, the lowest you've ever been and they were making fun of you for it, now they're, now they're coming asking for forgiveness? Christ is ready to forgive. And you're called to be like that and to love like that. And that kind of love will make your joy complete. John 5, 9 comes to mind. It says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. What? Love one another. These things I have spoken to you so that your joy, my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Jesus says, love others like I have shown you and I have exampled before you. 
When you do that, my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. You want your joy to be full? Love like Christ has loved you. Love one another. And this kind of love, it leads to thanksgiving to God for others. And we ought to be thankful for others. Thankful for our children, but we have to be thankful in the right way. It's similar to in James. If you remember in James, uh, where someone says, we will go to such and such a city and, and turn a prophet. James tells them, that's boasting, and all such boasting is evil. Instead, rather, he should say, if the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a place and do such a thing. Well, the only difference there between pleasing God and evil boasting is the acknowledgement that God is the one who determines whether or not they will be successful. That's the only difference. The orientation of your thoughts towards God, recognizing God is in this and how He is in it. Well, in the same way, when we see what God is doing in us or around us or especially in others, we ought to be thankful. But not just thankful, we ought to be thankful to Him. That's what we see Paul doing in verse 9. We give thanks to God for you and for the joy that you brought us. And this thanksgiving, it will turn your heart to the Lord. It will, it will prevent love from becoming a common thing. It will enlarge your heart towards others. You will grow in thankfulness for them, not bitterness toward them. And to the degree you do this, you will find joy and thankfulness in what God is doing. You, you find that in others. It will increase your capacity for joy. You see, if you love others as yourself, then when good things happen to them, you are as happy as if they happen to you. And because there's only one of you and many of them, your thankfulness, your ability to be thankful is multiplied. You can be thankful a hundred times over. You can be thankful for as many as there are in the entire church. Self-love limits your thanksgiving to one. Selfless love expands it. And God wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be thankful. And so He tells us how. Die to self. Love others and find your joy and your thanksgiving, not in what happens to you, but in what happens to them, and your joy will be invincible. This kind of love and joy is both commanded and exampled in the passage we left off in last week, which was 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. God's will for us is to give thanks always in all circumstances. To rejoice always because we always have reasons to rejoice. Not doing that quenches or grieves the spirit. And here in 1 Thessalonians 5, there's a, a strange verse, verse 20. But it fits in here with the idea of, of loving others and thanksgiving towards God. Do not despise Prophecies, or some translations, prophetic utterances. What's that? Well, here it's linked to grieving the Spirit and thankfulness and everything else. Why? Well, what does it mean to despise prophecies? You know, it's not what uh, the, the charismatics often think. Despising a prophetic word from a, a modern-day apostle. No, it's not that. It really has to do with preaching. A, a prophet is somebody who speaks the word of the Lord. Usually when we hear that we think of, you know, telling the future or giving a new revelation, but all prophecy is is proclaiming the word of the Lord. And when someone preaches if they're faithful to the Bible, to the word, they are preaching the word of God. 
Now, there are certain times when you hear someone preaching, you're listening to them, and a temptation creeps in to despise the sermon, doesn't it? I mean, even among believers, because this is written to believers, right? This is not written to pagans not to despise preaching. It's to the church in Thessalonica. And maybe you can relate to this. You hear a sermon, you're listening, and maybe it's not what you'd say, or maybe it's not what you want to hear, or it's not as precise what you, as you want it to be. Or maybe you're annoyed because you've heard it a hundred times already, and there creeps in a temptation to despise what's being said, e- even to despise the preacher. I mean, Paul experienced this. They gave him a hard time for how he preached. In Corinth, it says he knew nothing but Christ and Him crucified, and, and later his, his style of preaching comes under attack. It, he was called unimpressive with contemptible speech. I mean, it can happen. A Christian can despise a a good sermon. I've got to put the qualifier in there, a good sermon, because there are a lot of bad sermons too. But a Christian can hear a good sermon, a, a sermon faithful to the Word, and begin to despise it. But if we are more concerned about others than ourselves and thankful towards God in all things, well, then you can be assured and certain that God is at work in the sermon that you're tempted to despise. He just might not be working as hard on you. I mean, just just give an example. You have a pastor who looks out and he sees someone in the congregation and he knows they're not a Christian, and so he, he turns his entire sermon to start preaching right at them because he knows the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and he wants that one to be saved. You know what happens sometimes? The congregation gets annoyed. They get irritated. I mean, how self-centered can we be? Now, yes, I know the sheep need to be fed, and that's the most important role of the pastor, to feed the sheep. But to give 10, 15 minutes of a sermon for the sake of possibly saving someone from eternal hell and leading them to the glorious salvation and life that's found in Christ. I mean, maybe it's a lost son or a daughter, and their parents are next to them praying, begging God on their behalf. Or whatever it is, your son or daughter. How does a person who thanks God for all things and loves God selflessly respond to that with thanksgiving and with joy. You see? Do you see how liberating then a a thankful heart is? I mean, isn't bitterness and irritability and irritation and resentment, isn't it heavy? You know, you're you're resentful for something. It doesn't doesn't feel like a, a, a a linen shirt on a summer day. It feels like a backpack full of rocks. Thankfulness for others relieves you of that weight. It enables you to be joyful. You see how important it is in the Christian life to be God-centered in all things so that the glory uh, glory goes to Him. These go together. Love, joy in others, thankfulness for others, gives glory to God. It's always the goal. We always have to give the glory to God. That's why Paul, when he's thankful for the Thessalonians, he says, I thank, they're they're making him happy. He says, I thank God because of the joy that I have in you. He doesn't say, I thank you for the joy you've given me. I thank God for the joy I have in you. He's giving glory to God. And you know, that's easy to say, but how often do we act as if we've done something worthy of glory? And we expect 
credit for our accomplishments and we want praise and acknowledgement and we become thieves of the glory of God. I mean, can you imagine expecting thanksgiving that belongs only to God to be directed to us or shared with us? He will share His glory with nobody. He will share His glory with no spouse, no father, no mother for what He does in the lives of their children, even if He is using the parents to do it. It still comes from Him, you see? And, and, and do you see why thanksgiving towards God is so crucial? It protects you from idolatry and it preserves your own happiness. It preserves your happiness. It does. Expecting thanks, demanding thanks, that's a monster you can't feed. It will never say enough. It will make you a slave. Always wanting thanksgiving. Always wanting praise. Always wanting to be recognized. It's pride and it's very, very dangerous. And not only is it dangerous... It will not add to your joy. It will take joy away. One wrong word from another person can totally derail you. It will leave you like Haman in Esther. Do you remember him? He was being praised for all of his accomplishments. He was invited to the feast with Esther and the king. He loved it. He was the second in the kingdom, only under the king. Everything was going well for him. And then, on his way home, but then he sees a homeless Jew, Mordecai, who won't bow down to him, is not going to praise him, and it ruins his whole day. A few days later, it ruins his whole life. He even says, how can I be happy while this man will not bow to me? Second highest man in the kingdom. So proud and desirous of glory that a refusal of one homeless Jew to give him praise ruined his life. Craving and desiring praise and recognition and thanks is far more dangerous than you realize and it will make you miserable. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to give it. You should tell others you're thankful for what God is doing in them. But if you crave it and you need it and you demand it, then you need to repent. And you need to repent immediately. It's far worse and far more destructive to you and others than you think. It's the sin that cast Satan out of heaven. Pride. Craving glory. God alone is worthy of thanksgiving and praise because He is the one who orchestrates all things. I mean, even in your lives of your, your children, you raise them and you care for them and you point them to God and, and God is blessing all of the means that He gave you to use. And when you see good things in your children... Be thankful to God who is bringing those good things to pass. And listen, when you recognize that it's all of God's grace in people that does this, all God's grace that you're thankful for and you're giving all glory to Him, then you'll be thankful for even the least of them. The wavering, troublesome, immature believer who never seems to grow, but he loves God. God has done a glorious work in him. And that work of God is enough grounds for thankfulness to cover everything else. That's why even Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians and all of the problems that are in that church, all the problems he was about to wade into and try to sort out, do you know how he starts his letter? I give thanks always to God for you because of the grace that was given to you in Jesus Christ. Even to them, with all of their troubles, he is thankful for the grace of God in their lives. He's not bemoaning the grief that they've caused him. He's not saying, oh, I have to write to these people again. He is thanking God for the glorious work He has done. 
You see that? So it's not this critical attitude when you see sin in others, but a love for them that wants them to do well so that you can look at someone in all of their failures and their sins and and instead of that sour, self-righteous spirit, you pray, grace be multiplied unto them because you love them and you want them to do well. When was the last time you went into a, a difficult situation? You had to have a difficult talk with somebody and you knew, you know, this is going to be hard. But I thank you, God, for the grace you have so far displayed in this person's life. Lord, multiply grace unto them. That's the effect of this kind of love. Even with those who are difficult, they become lovable because usually the only reason that they're difficult to begin with is because they make trouble for you. But if you're dead to yourself for the sake of loving others, you're going to have a hard, you're going to have a hard time being annoyed and irritated with people when you love them regardless of how they make you feel. This has a transformative effect on your life and on the church and on the world. It changes how you pray. Your prayers are for others now, and you intercede for them for their good genuinely. It changes how you think about yourself. You begin to think of yourself as a servant of all. You want to serve them. You want to help those in the church. You want them to do as well as you. This kind of sacrificial love, it manifests itself in service. You actually want to serve others, especially in the church those who are in need. You want to visit the widows and make sure the new parents are being cared for. You don't mind leaving your plans off for the sake of someone else. You don't mind being inconvenienced in your home because of somebody else. You really want to do things for people and not because, you know, well, I really should, but because you actually want to. You want to minister to others. You want to pray for others. You have joy when you help them. Joy when they do well. All of it wrapped up in thanksgiving to God And it's one of the most practical and important things you could do as a Christian. Give yourself to those who are sitting around you right here in this room. It's practical. Serve, minister to, love others. It also has a transformative effect on the world around you. If you want to bear witness to the power of God to the world around you, sacrificial love is one of the most important ways to do that. Have you ever read, any of you, have you ever read any of the accounts of the enemies of the early church? When they're writing about the church, they're not talking about the miracles. They're not talking about the blind seeing and the lame walking. They're not talking about the the preaching or how rapidly Christianity seemed to spread. Do you know what they write about? Do you know what amazed the enemies of the early church, the Romans? You can read this in their letters. They're writing, how do these people love like this? They have nothing in common. They're from every strata and walk of life. They're different cultures, different races. And they love one another to the point of laying their lives down for one another. They even love their enemies. If you ever wonder how the church triumphed over the Roman Empire, just read what the Romans wrote. They could not get past the love that the believers had for one another. That's how the church is called to live. Not each one living for himself, but for the good of others. Not begrudgingly, but genuinely in love. That's God's desire for you. And at this point, there's usually two different responses. Two responses when people hear this. One person hears that. You know, it's a call to lay down their life for the sake of others. And when they, when they finally start to understand what it means, they don't want it. No thank you, this is not for me. I love my way, you love your way. 
I don't need to do this. I've got a lot in my own life right now to worry about. I don't have the time or the desire or the energy to love like this. And besides, I do do loving things every now and then, and that's good enough for me. Well, if that's you this morning, and, and you think that love is some kind of peripheral thing in Christianity, it's because you're on the peripherals of Christianity. You're on the edge, and I don't know if you're on the edge looking in and need to be saved, or you're on the edge in danger of falling away and need to repent of your lovelessness, but neither of those are good places to be. And if you persist in, in a dismissive attitude towards loving others, yeah, that's, that's good for some, but not for me. I'm content where I'm at. No desire to grow in love. Well, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at the singular mark of grace that every Christian has, whether they've been a believer for 50 years or day. Do you remember what it was? Do you desire to know Jesus better? Do you desire to know Jesus better? Well, the Bible tells us that as we look unto Christ and the more we know of him, it has a transformative effect on us. And as we behold his glory, we are transformed. And if you want to know Jesus more, but don't care to grow in love like his, I would have some serious concerns about the kind of Jesus you're wanting to know. And if you can just offhand dismiss the greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, as a small thing, something that you don't really need to attend to or to grow in. Now, I'm not saying you're, you're not a Christian, but it's a, it's a strong possibility. And if you are, it is a serious sin that needs to be repented of. Well, that's how one group responds, dismissively. The other responds despairingly. And they don't say, I don't really care to, maybe some of you, you think, well, that, that's me, I'm dismissive. Well, let's, let's be more precise here. You say, you're not saying, I don't care to do this. You say, I can't do this. I want to, but it's too much. It's just not in me to be that way. Listen, if that's you, let me be very clear. You don't have any reason right now for despair. That's actually the way, when you begin to understand what this kind of love requires, that's the way you ought to respond, at least at first. Because nobody, nobody is wired this way naturally. Nobody is born with a temperament to love like this. And that's, that's important to recognize that no one is wired this way, because if they were, you would think that, well... This kind of love, it has more to do with personality and temperament than it has to do with godliness. And some people are just better at it than others. It does not. Nobody has it in them to love this way. They need to receive it and learn it and grow in it. And God wants this for all of His children. He has lavished His own love on you in Christ. He has given you examples of it in Christ. He wants you to abound in this kind of love. And He is at work to create it in you. And that's an encouraging thing, isn't it? God wants me to be this way? Well, if God wants me to be this way and I have no power or ability to do so on my own, then surely, knowing God, He will help me. You see, despair creates dependence on God. And He will help you. And He has told us how He will help us. There are means, there are tools that God has given to grow in this kind of love. And again, I have to stress this. You do have to grow in it. Nobody starts out this way. Even as an infant believer, you know, a new believer, when a person first comes to Christ, there are a lot of things that change. 
But you know what? It's almost universal. They have to grow in love. They don't start out like a person who's been walking with the Lord for decades, loving others and being patient with others. I mean, think back on your own life when you were a new believer. Were you more loving then than you are now? Probably a little bit more belligerent in your faith. No, we grow in love. You, you, you grow in your capacity for love. That's why we're commanded to do it. You don't, you don't command someone to acquire something they already have. You command them to go and get something that they need to have and don't. And God has given us numerous ways to grow in this kind of love. And the first, and I know I say this all the time, but I say it because it's, it's necessary. You do it by renewing your mind in the Scriptures. You are not going to learn this kind of love from the world. You just aren't. You, you might have things that look similar, but they're never the same. And so you need to learn what love looks like from the Scriptures. And for some of you, you might need to unlearn what the world has taught you about love. Right? Take them out like the wood chips and replace worldly love with biblical love. You discover it only in the Scriptures. And along with the Scriptures, uh, theology and some good commentaries can help. They can go a long way. The, the main diet is the Bible, but other books, especially those that help you understand Scripture better and understand the love of Christ and, and the love of God better, they will help you to grow in this. But listen, there, there's a danger in that that can work against you as well. 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge can make you puff up and proud. Well, how? But imagine you were at a medical conference. Who would be the people up on the stage speaking? The doctors who know the most, right? Who have the most education, even if they're not the best doctors. See, we think that people who know the most have advanced the most. That's why somebody's ability is often measured by their education. It's not like that in the church. It's not measured that way in the kingdom of God. True Christian maturity is measured by one's Love, not the complexity of one's doctrine. True Christian maturity is measured by how much you love others. You want to know how far along you've come in the faith? There's the measuring rod. And what an encouraging thing. There are people out there who have never read a systematic theology. You've never read a commentary. You haven't read much. And you will excel the theologians because of your love for others. Yeah, listen, you ought to learn doctrine and you ought to study. But love for God and for others needs to be the goal of that study. You're not just learning for yourself. You're learning so that you can love more. And that seems kind of narrow at first, but the more you think about it, the broader it grows until it encompasses every area of life. I mean, I mean Jesus tells us all of the law and the prophets, they're summed up in the twin command, love God and love your neighbor. And all of the Christian life can be lived by just those two commands. And so go after truth and go after theology and go after especially the study of scriptures, but go all the way to its intended end and, and don't stop short or sell yourself short, you know, with a big puffed up head. Go after those things as a means to increase in love. And then next, when you begin to get a sense of what is actually required, recognize and confess your inability to do it. You want to grow in this kind of love? Realize, like we said before, I can't do it. 
and go to God because you need the power of God to love like this. You cannot do it on your own, no matter how much you know, no matter how hard you try. You need to realize how far beyond you this actually is so that you will despair of ever being able to create it in the flesh. And you can learn this the easy way or you can learn this the hard way. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it's the fool who learns by experience. Did you know that? We have a way of thinking that says, well, the only way that you can learn is by experience. And unless you experience something, you know, experience especially the consequences of something, you'll never learn it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that's how fools learn. So if you're a parent or a child, take notes. The wise person learns by believing the instruction of their teachers. I mean, just take a hot stove, for example. A wise child heeds their parents, and they don't touch the hot stove so they won't be burned. A foolish child learns by touching the stove. The Proverbs teach that's how fools learn. And you can either, now, regarding love, believe the Scriptures and confess your inability to do what God calls you to do, or you can try and do it on your own and discover just how inadequate you are. You can try to love in your own strength and it will fail every time and you'll get frustrated and wonder why you never can and then rinse and repeat the next day and, and so on and so on and fail over and over again until you learn the lesson, I can't do this. Or you can believe up front, I can't do this, but God can. Either way, however you learned, either by wisdom or painful experience, you must realize you cannot do this and go to God in prayer. That's the third way to cultivate this. Prayer. Specifically, asking for God to help you and to forgive you where you failed. I mean, there, there are so many things that you know you are supposed to do, aren't there? So many things in the Christian life you just say, I know I've got to do this. I know I have to love like I know I have to, but I have no power to do it, right? And yet so often you just go about the day assuming that because I know God wants me to love and I'm making an effort to love, I will love. Or I know God wants me to forgive, I'm going to make an effort to do it, I will forgive. It's not working though, is it? Do you know why it isn't working? You have not because you ask not. And what you need to do is go to the Lord in prayer so that He will give you the ability to love selflessly wrestle with God until it's settled. This is not natural to the flesh. It's, it's not. We want to learn and then do. We, we don't like to take the time to ask for help or, and confess our inability. But loving this way is an impossibility without asking for it. You say, why? Well, because ultimately it is the work of God in you. You see that in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 3. 11 and 12, now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Listen to this, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. The Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. He is the one who does it. He, he is the one Paul is praying will do it in the hearts and the lives of the Thessalonians. And unless we are praying for the Lord to enable us to die more to ourselves so that we can love others, to increase uh, love for others in us, it won't happen. It just won't work. So, so don't think that you can do this without earnestly seeking the Lord. Again, this is why only knowing more doesn't help. 
How many times there's a, there's a thorny area in your life that you want to get victory over and you think, if I just knew more, or if I just, one more sermon on love or on self-control or on whatever it is, this or that, one more, and you, and you go to it thinking, this will do it, and it doesn't work. It's because you already know it, and the problem is you can't do it. We can't work ourselves up into it either. You know, so when you hear a sermon like this or you read in Scripture about something God calls you to do that you're, you're not able to do, don't leave thinking, well, now I'm going to go and do it. How many times have you done that and it hasn't worked? When you hear these things that God calls you to do that seem impossible, realize, apart from God, it isn't possible. And go to the one who can and who will, who has promised to increase your love. Then and only then will you be able to go and do it. You know, these, these kind only come out in prayer. There are certain things that just can't be overcome with knowledge and effort. Only through prayer. The fourth way to cultivate this kind of love is to repent of self-love and selfishness. It steals the glory from God and it kills your own joy. But it's deceptive too. Here's how. Maybe you've been listening to me and you think, well, I do this, and I, and I do all of that, and I'm the most selfless person that, uh, that, that I know because I make sacrifices all the time, and I'm not joyful or anything like that. There's a problem in there. Did you see it? We're not talking about sacrificing for others. We're talking about selflessly loving others. Sacrificing for others is a byproduct of love, and it is very possible to sacrifice for others without loving them. It happens all the time. And it kills love and it kills joy because primarily it's done for self, selfish sacrifice. Maybe again, you want to be recognized or praised. Maybe it's self-righteousness and pride. Just because you sacrifice doesn't mean you're being selfless and loving. It's possible to sacrifice a great deal and not love anything. Just read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. It says it very clear. If I lay down my life to be burned, and if I give all, all that I have away to be burned and, and lay down my life and have not love, I have gained nothing. It's possible to sacrifice for others out of a motivation that is wrong and unloving. And that's why when you don't receive the praise or get the acknowledgement that you think you deserve, that's why sometimes you get upset. Because the sacrifice was never really about love for others. It was about making them think better of you. And you get irritated because that didn't happen. And really, that's, that's really a good indicator of whether your love is selfless or not. How do you respond when a person doesn't react to your sacrifice in the way that you expect them to or want them to? A child or a husband or a wife or a coworker, whoever. How do you respond? If it's with outrage and indignant then maybe the sacrifice is motivated by a selfishness that needs to be repented of and not so loving after all. But if you find selfish love of any kind creeping up and you kill it, give it no mercy. Ask for forgiveness from others when you do it to them. Confess it to God or, or better, even before anything is said or done, fight the battle in your mind. You know, I will not demand what I think I deserve. I will die to myself for the sake of love. And you, you don't do this because you want to be morose or, or self-flagellating like a monk or, or go around depressed like Eeyore all the time. You do it because you want 
joy. Selfishness kills joy. When have you ever been selfish and it brought you joy and made you thankful? When? It never does that. Love for self and lo is the great enemy of love for others and, lo and, and joy. So if you see it, repent of it violently. If you see it, fight it. I mean, you're married, right? And you have those grumbling thoughts. Attack them ruthlessly. And I bet if we spent more time attacking ourselves, we'd spend a lot less time attacking others. A lot less time attacking our wife and kids. Ultimately, the problem is right here. It's in me and it's in you. It's inside of us. It's selfishness. It's too much love for me and not enough love for everyone else. If you see it in you, kill it. Be relentless towards it. Don't tolerate it for a second. You'll be thankful that you did. Next way to cultivate this, persevere in difficult relationships. So listen, you're you're married and it's difficult, you're having a hard time with kids, the first thing the enemy is going to say to you is it's meaningless. It's a difficult relationship, it's meaningless, your years are wasting away, it's pointless, just give up. Lose heart, tune out, go cold, whatever. When you hear those thoughts, don't listen. It's not meaningless. Every rasp of that relationship, whoever it is, whatever it is, Every day, it's changing you. And if you're in Christ, it's changing you for the better. It is whittling away at sin in you piece by piece. Now, this sometimes brings people into, into despair. It, it does because it's, it's hard. But it doesn't have to bring you into despair when you see it rightly. It doesn't have to do that if you're a Christian. This is actually an opportunity to grow in joy and in thankfulness, a, a kind that doesn't spring from your circumstances but transcends them because it doesn't well up inside of you but comes down from God. So persevere in difficult relationships without resentment. I mean, see them for what they really are, a pruning knife in the hand of God that cuts away unfruitful branches and fertilizer that causes the fruitful ones to grow. Let's, let's pause for a second on marriage. It's Valentine's Day week after all. You know what the greatest enemy to your marriage is? If you're a Christian, I mean there are lots of enemies. The greatest enemy, look in the mirror and you'll find the culprit. And if you want your marriage to go well and you want God to be honored, you need to die to yourself to love your spouse. Here's why. If you're anything like me, 99% of the battles in your marriage are because of your reaction when you are sinned against. Right? Most of the problems in your marriage can be solved by refusing to answer sin with sin. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. So when words that hurt, either intentionally or not, or the right thing isn't said that you were hoping would be said, or they could have been more caring, or there's a look that could mean anything, but you think it's aimed at you. And even if it is, just resist that self-justifying urge. And we all know what I mean. Just let it go. Die to self so that love can cover over sins and in some cases make way for the wrath of God. But 
taking up arms in the banner of service to self is never going to help. It doesn't. And, and that doesn't mean, by the way, just to be clear about this, that doesn't mean you don't ever talk about those things. There are loving and respectful ways to bring them up and deal with them. Your spouse under God has the same responsibility to you as every other believer under God to, to, to sharpen one another. Just like in Romans 18, if somebody causes offense, go to them. Just because you're married to the person doesn't mean that Matthew 18 no longer applies. But we ought to avoid bitterness and resentment. And listen, listen. When you find your pride wounded, don't nurse it back to hell. Finish it off. That's how you persevere in difficult relationships. They will become arenas of building character and then treasuries of joy. And last, last way to grow in love, I'm sure there are others, last one we'll look at now that we've seen all the rest, is to prioritize love. You say, what do you mean? Well, look, you've been renewing your mind in Scripture. You've been praying to God for help. You've been persevering in the relationship. You've been repenting of selfishness and pride. And now you're in a situation where somebody is irritating you, or they're being impatient, they're not giving you what you deserve, or they're just asking for help when you're really busy or telling you some good thing that happened this week when you don't really want to hear it, in that moment you have to make a decision. And we've all been there. There is that moment where a decision is made, that, that split second almost, and the rest of the conversation will either descend into war or it's disarmed. And in those moments, don't play the victim to the rising pride. Strike it down and determine. Make up your mind. Make up your mind before you even get out of bed in the morning. I am going to love. I am going to do what love requires. Prioritize love. Decide to love. The goal is for it to be spontaneous, to just come on its own. doesn't always happen that way, and sometimes it's a battle. It's a battle in the mind, but it's a battle worth fighting, and it's a battle to love. And it's not just in arguments. It's in everything. What choice does love demand? And then do it. Trust in the Lord for His help. Don't dare go without Him, but plot a course of action according to His Word. Repent of selfishness. Persevere in difficult relationships and then make up your mind to do it. It's a lot. It's not easy. And if you see the lack of this in your own life, don't despair. Go to God with your lovelessness. He is, he is able to enlarge your heart. I, I want you to know that. It's possible to love more tomorrow than you do today. I mean, ha haven't you ever just looked at your family and you've thought, man, my heart is full it's almost like, it's almost like the, the walls of your heart are being, being pressed and there's not enough room to fit in the love you have for them. I, hopefully all of you know what I'm talking about. A, a fullness that almost makes the heart ache. You haven't even begun to love. And it's not that the love you have in that moment isn't real. It is. There's just so much more of it to be had. And God can enlarge your heart in such a way that the love you have today, right now, in a year's time, maybe more, maybe less, but He can enlarge your heart so that when you look back on what you have today, 
you will wonder, did I really even love at all? The love I have now is so much greater than I had then. I, I, I mean, don't you want that to increase in love and joy and thankfulness and all of those things? You can. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen quickly. You know, we went through ways you can grow in this. Listen, if, if you never read your Bible, don't go home tonight and say, I'm going to read a book a day. Go home and say, I'm going to read a chapter. I'm going to read 12 verses every day. If you've never prayed, you say, I, I really haven't made much of a habit of praying. Don't go home and say, I'm going to spend the night in prayer. Go home and pray for a few minutes. Practice these things. Grow in these things. No, no infant is expected to run or even to eat solid food. And if you're an infant in the faith, don't expect all of these things to come at once, but do expect them to come as you grow in them. There is work involved, but it becomes a joyful labor. And don't, don't just be concerned to see it grow in you. If you're only concerned to see it grow in you, we, we might miss the point of the whole sermon. Seek to see this kind of love cultivated in others as well. You have a part to play in that. Yes, by prayer for them, interceding for them, but primarily by loving others this way. When we all fall short in many ways, but through our communion and fellowship and dwelling together, we make up for the lack in one another and set examples for one another on how to grow together and mature in Christian love. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stir one another up in love. Now may our God and Father himself and Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example, for your word, for your love that you've lavished upon us. And I pray, God, that there would be no one despairing in this room. Lord, but we would repentantly go to you and find joy go to you in thanksgiving, go to you to give glory to you, that our hearts would be enlarged with love for others, Lord. We don't have it in us. I don't stand up here as a, as a shining example of this. Lord, I'm speaking from painful experience. We need you to teach us to love. I pray, Lord, that you would work in us, God, to make us more like Christ. Dig away those, those things that have to be dug away so that we could be built up in love. Help us to answer the accusations of the enemy that scream at us that your discipline and pruning is pointless. Lord, thank you that your word is true and you are at work in your people. Help us to persevere in difficult relationships. Help us to repent of selfishness 
Lord, help us to see it as it really is. It wants to destroy our relationships and our love. You want to build us up. Help us to be, Lord, like that early church that when the world looks on, they would be confounded by our love for one another. Lord, it should not be hard. We live in such a loveless age. Increase our love, Lord, for one another that we might think of others as better than ourselves. What a joy there is to be found. What a glory there is when we walk together in unity and love. Increase this in us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.